This podcast was recorded on June 18th, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Double Line Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, everybody, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And here we are on June 18th, uh, talking about markets. We have a very special guest today, one that I thought would be very appropriate given uh, we're talking about elections and trying to talk about forecasting and how that applies uh, not only to the political landscape, but also to financial markets. We have Sean Trendy, who's a senior election analyst at Real Clear Politics. So welcome to the show, Sean. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. But given we have a little tumultuous times on the on the markets and uh, again, from the economic standpoint, Sam, why don't you give us an update since last week when we got together? Let's talk about the market real quick. Talk about some of the economic data, good data, uh, some interesting data points out today. And then we'll jump right in and get to our guests. Sounds good. So kicking off on our usual host of uh, market data points, we'll go into the S&P 500 through close of business yesterday, June 17th. Month to date up about two and a half percent. Year to date down about two and a half percent. The U.S. aggregate uh, for the bond index is up 30 basis points on the month. Uh, to date basis, year to date, uh, 5.8 percent positive. Gold futures uh, down 40 basis points for the month to date. Year to date up 13 and a half percent. LME copper up 7.4 percent for the month and down six and a half percent year to date. WTI crude oil futures up 7% month to date, a little bit slower pace than it was in uh, in the month of May, uh, but still positive nonetheless. But year to date remains positive at just about negative 38%. You said positive there. I don't think negative 38 is positive, Sam. But I, I do want to point yeah. out on, on, on copper, as you mentioned, too, that there has been a pretty significant rebound there. And for thinking of it as a bellwether for economic activity, only being down about six and a half percent sounds like a pretty good perspective. But also remember the Wuhan uh, virus when it kicked off started last year as well. So we did see some weakness in copper prior to that. So, uh, again, just using the calorie point as a reference may not give exactly the right picture there when we think about that global barometer. But again, just want to point out, I think it's an interesting data point of that rebound in copper prices. Yeah, definitely. It's been a, a strong march back up for the the red metal there. You know, as of March 23rd, I see it up about 25% just uh, over that short time period as well. So interesting to see that. We'll see if it continues to hold. Uh, but moving on to the the sovereign markets here at the 10-year part of the curve with treasuries uh, pretty much flat, you know, over the end of the month, it's up about 10 basis points or so. Uh, all that flat uh, in this uh this low yielding world, but uh, we're at uh, negative or at positive. Sorry, I got to get my negative and positives uh, in check here, but we're up on a positive 0.74 yield for the 10 year Treasury. 10 year Bund uh, was up five basis points over the end of uh, May at negative 40 basis points, and JGBs are at positive one basis points 
as of last night. In terms of spreads on on cash bonds here across a different uh, corporate market, uh, corporate credit markets on investment grade U.S. We have spreads at about 150 basis points. That's about 26 uh, basis points tighter over month end May. For high yield, we saw a similar trend. It's at about 580 basis points through last night in about 70 over month end May. And for EM corporate credit, 380 basis points in about 45 basis points for that month. So the, the trend of tightening uh, spreads continues there in these, these corporate credit markets. Yeah, and we saw this week too, the, the Fed finally announced that they're outright buying corporate bonds. Uh, a lot of uh, was made a do about that. Uh, however, uh, the Fed was already unplanned to do that one. Secondly, I think their plan was a little bit better, although we loathe the idea of them manipulating some of these markets, um, at least now like by creating an, an index that they call it that's elig- uh, based on their eligibility criteria. So they essentially take the, the broad IG market, they parse it down in, uh, based on the eligibility criteria, and they're trying to buy in that type of uh, pro rata basis. So those, those that data gets released today. We also saw TALF uh, start funding yesterday. About $250 million was in the first subscription on the first day. Uh, definitely underwhelming from uh, the amount of chatter around it. It was heavily focused in the commercial mortgage market. And to us, those spread levels don't make a lot of sense. Uh, why you'd be trying to do that at these levels. But again, I guess there's this premise of uh, the trend is your friend uh, um, uh, in these markets today, and we'll see how that continues. So Sam, why don't you give us an update on the economics? I know we really want to hear from Sean today, so let's kind of uh, crank to the economics today. Yeah, you know, this is pushed through over to, you know, the the jobless claims that we've seen that, you know, it seems to be the most uh, freak, highest frequency data that we've been getting that gives us a tries to give us a sense of the pulse in the economy. So what we saw in the initial jobless numbers that came out today, there is a um, another 1.5 million individuals uh, filed for unempl- initial unemployment this week. Uh, the good news is that it is a been on the downtrend uh, over the past uh, few weeks now. Uh, but the bad news is, so now that we have a start date of a recession, you know, now that the, the um, NBER, National Bureau of Economic Research, has come out and officially declared that the recession began in uh, March of this year. From that uh, start date, we've had about 46, over 46 million people file for initial jobless claims since the beginning of the the recession there. Continuing claims continues to to hover there right around 20.5 million, down slightly over previous week, but still holding steady right there at the, the 20 plus mark. So well, we'll continue. I, and I want to cut you off there, Sam, because, yeah. you know, this this does isn't consistent with what we saw from the non-farm payrolls number, right? So we saw non-farm payrolls for the month of May show an increase in jobs. But now when we look at this, we see these, uh, these unemployment claims, especially on the continuing front, not corroborate that data set. So I think one thing that we've been looking at, or I know one thing we've been looking at, is also this uh, pandemic unemployment assistance too, where there's over 9 million uh, people that are on that program as well. So um, when you start to look at the unemployment picture, it does still resonate that we look closer to like that 20% number of, of overall aggregate unemployment to stage. So again, uh, it looks a little funky with the non-farm payrolls, um, but we are seeing some improvement in the data set. 
I think as, as uh, what I want to make sure our listeners are aware, though, uh, although we're seeing improvement in a lot of this data front, not seeing improvement in the jobs market is very important because although we've seen retail retail sales bounce back, we've seen more economic activity, whether that's through the you know the consumption of gasoline we talked about a couple of weeks ago, or whether it's through open table reservations, you're starting to see that data improve significantly. Remember that these there's this supplemental unemployment insurance that's giving an incremental $600 a week to those on unemployment right now. That expires in six weeks' time. So without an extension there or a resumption of these jobs back in the market, the data set could be susceptible to fall from there. So we'll have to take a look at that. It's something that you know we're obviously very eager to look at every single week when those those data prints come out. Yeah, and that's right. And as you mentioned, some of this data it doesn't corroborate what we saw in the non-farm payrolls. Uh, in terms of the continuing claims, they they also put out a uh, unemployment rate based on the number of unpo- uh, continuing claims, and that's right around fourteen percent, which kind of corroborates what we saw in the U three, which in and of itself. Um, by the calculation agent's old admission that it, it's probably lower and could be adjusted higher to around 16 or 17 percent on the U3, and that was due to a misclassification of employed individuals. But it's interesting to see taking on that pandemic unemployment assist- assistance numbers of continuing claims at about 9 million. If you add that to continuing claims, those two together would corroborate you know, that the adjusted U3 as well, putting it right around 18 or 19 percent when you add those two Uh, continuing claims data together. So um, right now, some of the stuff seems to be on the headline underreporting, you know, perhaps the uh, some of the stress that we're seeing in the the jobs front. So yeah, so um, so I know you're going to call me out for using 20% versus 18 and 19. At least I got the sign right, right? Yeah, the sign is is important in this uh, day and age, right? So yeah. Um, that's kind of where we are in the state of the economy based on the data. And, you know, as we have Sean Trendy here, you know, on deck, you know, we're less than five mi- five months away from the, the presidential election. So it's uh, it'll be interesting to hear what he has to say. Yeah. So those of you not familiar with Sean, he's a, a well-recognized author. He wrote a great book called The Lost Majority, While the Future of Government is Up for Grabs and Who Will Take It. Uh, this was before the 2016 election. That was back in 2012. Um, he's also a co-author of the Almanac of American Politics. Um, but Sean, why don't you give us a little bit of background about yourself, your education, what got you into this, this realm of uh, political forecasting? Well, thanks for having me. Um, <clears throat> I kind of went or got into this uh, from a backwards perspective, I guess, uh, compared to most people. Um, I went to law, went to undergrad and worked uh, on the Hill for a little bit. Uh, and then I went to law school and practiced law at some big firms uh, for a few years. And then over the course of, while I was at law school, I actually got a master's in political science. Uh, and so around 2004, um, I started noticing that some of the political commentary was getting a little bit more numerical, uh, more quantitative, uh, but still wasn't as good as I thought it should be. So I started writing a blog, uh, which was a thing back in the 2000s, and it just kind of grew from there. It got to the point where I built up enough of an audience that Real Clear Politics took an interest in me in 2009 and 2010, and here I am. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about Real uh, Real Clear Politics for those who don't know. What what is the objective of Real Clear Politics, and kind of what do you do um, on a day-to-day basis? So there's a lot of uh, things that Real Clear Politics 
does. I mean, if you go to our front page, it's it's almost overwhelming until you get used to the layout. Uh, something we we kind of struggle with from time to time. But uh, there, there's kind of two what I would consider core functions. Uh, the first is to try to gather the best commentary on the issues of the day. And by best, we don't necessarily remember. We absolutely don't mean conservative or Republican commentary. Uh, we mean commentary uh, that shows both sides of an argument. And so if you go to our front page, you'll you'll see uh, people making the argument for taking down Confederate monuments, and you'll see people making the argument against doing so, uh, because we kind of feel that's the best way uh, for people to make decisions uh, about the issues of the day. Now, the other thing we do, and what I think we're probably uh, most famous for is our poll aggregation. Uh, so our viewpoint is that you know polls are just a single sample, and polls have pollsters have their own biases and their own methods. And I'm, I'm imagining we'll probably talk about that later, but we kind of take the view uh, that by aggregating polls, by averaging them, uh, you, you get a better view of what's going on. Right. And that, that's kind of what uh, led us down the path of talking to you today outside of the work you do. There's a lot of parallels when it comes to aggregating data or looking at data prints in the financial world. Um, it's very similar to what you're trying to do here. We're all using processes of statistics and trying to see if one data set should be weighted heavier versus another and how to think about that when trying to um, figure out how to allocate capital. But I, I think it would be important, maybe you can talk about, can you describe the process of how you aggregate these polls, like how you select them, how, how you know they're consistent, are they asking similar questions? Because we all know that uh, there can be these inherent biases as you line out, uh, as, as you outlined, about um, the topic that you're using and how you ask the question. So uh, yeah. what, what is the process and, and why do you feel that this, this process you guys use of aggregation is superior to, let's just say, a myopic poll? So there, there's a... A lot going on in that question. <laughs> this might take me a while to work through. So um, one thing on my background I didn't mention because it's fairly recent. Uh, you know, I got a, a master's degree in applied statistics from Ohio State, uh, in part because we're seeing so much, uh, so many different sites taking so many approaches to aggregation. We wanted to know kind of what they were doing, what the theory was behind them, you know, and, and so forth. Um and so for some people who are what we might call highly teched up, um, our approach is, seems rudimentary. I mean, uh, we literally just average the top line poll numbers. Um, this is opposed to someplace like 538 or, or Huffington Post pollster that kind of has this complex algorithm uh, that they go through. But at the end of the day, you know, we, we think our track record is such that it justifies the more transparent approach uh, that, that people can understand. I know that's going to sound a little sales pitchy, uh, but that's genuinely how we view it. You know, there's some transparency just going with a simple poll average. Now, you, you raise an exceptional question, uh, which is, what do you do about people asking the question differently? Um, and you'll see this, you know, do you approve of the job the president's doing? Do you strongly approve, somewhat approve, somewhat disapprove or strongly disapprove of the job the president's doing? Um, do, you, for, for, do you give an option for undecided or do you label it neutral? Um, different pollsters 
uh, take different approaches to answering those questions. And it does kind of move us a little bit out of, of the pure central limit theorem statistical uh, approach to this. Um, and yet we still sort of, we still, still sort of take the approach that, you know, the, the, the truth on these question wordings is likely not going to be one particular, you know, if there's, if there's something out there, you're really trying to measure job, you know, the platonic ideal of job approval, uh, a variety of ways of probing, uh, that job approval question is going to be good. Now there are things that we exclude, like there's a, there's a similar question. Uh, do you have a favorable or unfavorable uh, opinion of Donald Trump? And we think that's sufficiently dissimilar uh, that we wouldn't, we have a separate average for that. But, um, you know, at a certain point you are, you are splitting hairs a little bit, um, but it is just kind of inherent in the approach. So in today's uh, world too, because we see this too, um, again, drawing the pillow of the financial market, some of the errata or the the likely mislabeling of the non-farm payrolls that we were discussing early on was attributed to lower response rates. And so this could be because of the pandemic, people aren't as accessible, maybe they're being called on their work phone, now they're not there, um, they're just not answering their cell phone, it could be something completely different. So thinking about that and you know, you're aggregating this data, you know, what, what do you guys look at when you talk about different vehicles uh, for taking surveys, like the in-person, you know, staying in front of the grocery store, which I think is still okay these days, you can go to the grocery store, uh, but versus online versus, you know, cell phone. Uh, do you guys think about different methodologies and do you prefer, do you, do you prefer one to the other or is it just, you know, also you want to get them from all sources to, to get a more representative opinion? How, how do you think about that? Yeah, so... Actually, I'm just, so when we talk about non-farm payrolls, are we talking about the current population survey data? From the yeah, what, what, yeah, what, what that is is yeah. it's a, it's a monthly jobs report from the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics. So uh, we've just noticed that the the response rate of people responding to that has been significantly lower than than it was pre-COVID. Let's say. So I'm not asking for your yeah. opinion on on that as much as just kind of techniques you guys are using to try to make sure you get the best representation for your predictability. No, it's interesting that you because that the current population survey uh, after each election does a voting and registration supplement uh, that is, that is a you know treasure trove of data uh, except for the problem that people lie about whether they voted or not. When you take it back, <laughs> it's actually a very nice illustration of some of the issues we deal with. You know, people lie about lots of things, but two things they consistently lie about is did you vote and did you go to church on Sunday. Um, because we know from various sources, you know, what the actual rate of church attendance is more or less, and it's 20 points higher in surveys. We know from looking at vote totals how many people voted, and if you believe the, the census numbers, it's something like 80% of the population votes. We know it's more like 60. Um, something similar presents in public survey data. Um, not directly on point, because there is such thing as social desirability bias, and we do think that might affect President Trump's numbers somewhat. Uh, people don't want to, because he's so controversial, people don't want to uh, admit to a poll, live pollster uh, that, that they're going to vote for the president or approve of him. Um, but the, the broader issue that you kind of touch on is you know, we all have cell phones now, and we all know what happens when a cell phone number comes up and it's something we don't uh, recognize. We, you know, hit decline, and we say to ourselves, well, if it's important, they'll leave a message. Well, if it's a pollster, 
that's potentially a, a big problem uh, because you, you, the way the theory behind polling is that it's you know the, the example you always use with classes is it's, it's like picking out you know jelly beans from a jar. Um, if you take a, hand, a random handful of 100 jelly beans from a jar of you know 50,000 jelly beans, that handful mathematically should give you a pretty good idea what the actual distribution of jelly beans in the jar is. Um, but if it's not randomly distributed, you know, if the jelly beans are layered, for example, you're not going to get a very good uh, look at things. And so as people refuse to respond to cell phones and as there are increasingly um, age, race, um, not so much gender, but, but other breakdowns in how people, how likely people are to respond to telephones, there's a potential skew in the data. Now, the workaround people are going with right now is, is internet polling. And internet polling is, is one of those things that we do treat cautiously. Um, some of that just goes back to the first round of internet polling from John Zogby in 2004, which was, you know, quite frankly, terrible. Uh, and I think it, it left a bad taste in the mouth uh, of a lot of people. Other endeavors or attempts to do internet polling have, have met with more success, but we're, we're still a little more skeptical, especially because of the kind of every man a printing press aspect of it, right? Anyone can do an internet poll, but that doesn't mean that they have the background or have done the research uh, to, to successfully do an internet poll. Yeah. And so I guess when you think about that too, like how do you deal with this whole thing? Because it's something we think about financial data, especially when you're, you're trying to extrapolate something, it's the sampling error. So how do you deal with that and the representation? I mean, uh, is it just that you are kind of relying on, as you said, the central limit theorem and the law of large numbers that, you know, if you have enough of these into, uh, these polls together, it should give you a broader stroke? Or how, how do you think about that? And what do you do to help model those those kind of errors that you know, that you know you're going to be inclined to have? You know, it's it's interesting. One of the big distinctions, I think, between what you get when you go to real clear politics and when you go to a site like 538, and, and I think the quant you know, quantitative people don't like this. You know, we, we don't model the variance. We give you the point estimate, right? We're like, okay. the average of the polls is this. Whereas, you know, Nate, Nate Silver, uh, some of the other people will try to incorporate um, the uncertainty from the error margins into it. But, but our view is because of all the issues that you raise correctly, um, it, it, it's too hard to accurately model that variance. Right. Well, I think too, uh, as you think about it, I think that one of the important factors is, is, to, is to make sure that these are actually people that are voting, right? So as you think about mm -hmm. that, um, you know, um, and you, you mentioned the prevalence of online and, and typically people who are gonna go out and, and electively do these things or respond to these typically have extreme passion. But how, do you, how does that passion kind of, uh, translate into actually voting what do you actually see that in the data of like responses are they somewhat consistent with the voting block or you know how does one try to think about that i know it, you know you can have every intention in the world to vote and something could come up that day and you don't get to um you know there's been a lot made about you know mail-in votes and things so how do you think about that when trying to uh have confidence in these point estimates so there's kind of a big issue lurking in there. Um, if you go to our site right now, 
uh, you'll see a column for, I can't remember if we label it type of poll or what, but, but the idea is we break down whether the poll is of adults, which is anyone who wants to respond uh, can give their answer, whether the pollster asks the additional question and filters more uh, of registered voters, are you registered to vote or not? Um, and then there's a, another subsample of polls, which are polls of likely voters, uh, where the pollster attempts to try to figure out uh, how likely that individual is to vote. And the te techniques vary wildly uh, in their sophistication. Some pollsters just ask, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to vote? Um, and there's some research that suggests that's actually the most accurate way to do it. You, you know, mm. anyone who's less than an eight, because people lie, everyone says, you know, oh yeah, I'm at least a six. But if you're less than an eight, you're not going to vote, um, is, is say a cutoff. Other pollsters do some complex modeling to try to figure it out, and that's fine as well. Um, but but that's, that's the major approach. Look, at a certain point, the, the polls become more art than science uh, because of that uh, likely voter modeling. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You talk about art versus science. We, we talk about that concept all the time in managing money. Uh, we have data sets, there's a scientific analysis, but there's a lot of art to it of like how you deploy that. Uh, when do you deploy that? How, how does it look? Is there target ranges and things? So um, they're definitely, I, I appreciate that you, you bring the art concept into it as well. But I, I think we've, uh, we've seen in the last election in the U.S. and also uh, during the Brexit uh, that there was this uh, perception out there in the world that the pollsters got it completely wrong. Um, that, oh, this, this was a, an unforeseen amount of events. Um, and the, the statistics and the pollsters are uh, inaccurate now. Well, how do you respond to that? One, is that perception reality? And then secondly, what would you offer to someone who had those comments? No, I, I don't think it's accurate. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the polling was right. It was the analysts uh, that were off, especially with Brexit. Um, it was really, it was really kind of stunning that in the run-up to Brexit, you know, you, the polling was like, you know, Remain was behind by maybe a point or two, and you would see all this commentary from people that was like, yeah, you know, it's likely to be a very close race, but yet they all said, I think, I think uh, Remain is going to win. I'm sorry, I guess Remain was ahead by a point or two, um, right. and they would all say, almost everyone said, we think Remain is going to win. Uh, and I, I think the issue was most of the people who are of a social class where they are giving commentary um, were probably Remain voters. And so the tie kind of went to their own um, bias. Similar thing with Trump's election. I mean, I, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but I wrote a, a series of, of polls over the course, especially the summer of 2016, saying, look, this is a close race. Um, you know, Trump's Trump's only down by a couple points, and yeah, he'll do something stupid, and Hillary will blow out a lead, but then it'll just tighten again. Um, and I don't think he's going to win, but but there's a very real possibility he'll do it. Um, and just got excoriated. I mean, people hated yeah. the article. Well, it's um, it's it's a thing because, as you said, there's these biases that people have, and they're mm -hmm. looking for data to corroborate their own opinion, and and that's that's rampant in the financial world. Uh, you'll see that if you ever look at any commentary, if you put out something that people don't believe, they just point to some one data point that may contradict that. So it's a, definitely a, a confirmation bias too. But mm -hmm. I think that's what your 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 firm is trying to do is to say, look, 
here's the data, here's what we see. And, you know, um, look, it, you can draw your own conclusions from it, but don't bring in your inherent bias. Yeah. And that gets back to the question, too, of why we don't do a lot of, you know, modeling of the variance aside, for, not to get too philosophical, um, but there is a philosophy behind all the statistics that I think gets glossed over uh, and a psychology to it. Um, you know, once you start modeling the variance, because it's so tricky and because there's so many things we know, but don't also so many things we don't know, you're, you're going to bring your biases into that modeling. Uh, and ultimately, the model you produce is going to kind of reflect your your inherent view of how things work, right? That's what models are at their core. The people see them as these fancy mathematical constructs, but at the end of the day, they're just an expression of how you think the world works. They don't spring Athena-like from your forehead. Um, <laughs> and so, but, but people treat it that way, um, and, and that's not it. So the more we model, the more, as far as we're concerned, the more we model, the more we're putting us into the data, and um, that becomes problematic when you have some of the inherent issues with, with the data that you have in polling. So, so let me ask that. It, it really prompts a great question, I think. Well, it's my own question, so I think it's great. But what do you think is really the, the importance of these polls in shaping the opinion of, of America or, you know, any, anybody in an election? Because, you know, we see this, too, that sometimes the polls come out and it, it causes, you know, a change in opinion. People say, well, that can't be the case. How do all these people feel this way or support this issue? And I think we've seen that a lot, too, with, you know, this kind of social uprising over the last uh, couple of months with uh, the police situation across the country. And you're seeing a lot of people respond completely different than they had in the past. And so do you think that there is something about reading these polls that kind of helps formulate public opinion or changes it, or people are taken aghast by it, or they become more accommodative of something? Uh, how do you think about that? You know, I don't know how much it changes uh, actual public opinion, like people changing their minds. I, I do think there can be, some of these polls can be self-reinforcing and it gets to that social desirability bias I was talking about. I mean, for a long time, not as, I mean, it's a moot point because of the Supreme Court, but for a long time, uh, when you polled people on marriage equality and uh, on referenda, back when we were still holding referenda on it, um, yes the level of support expressed in the polls was always higher than the level of support expressed in the actual referenda uh, or referendum. Uh, and it's because, you know, I think people felt pressured to answer a certain way, whereas when they went to the voting booth, their, their true preferences were, were revealed. As far as like changing electoral outcomes, it's something I've been intrigued by, but I think it's interesting that, that we kind of get it from both sides. I mean, in, in 2016, there were the Trump supporters who were saying, hey, you know, by showing these polls, showing Trump losing, you're dispiriting his supporters. And then when Trump won, the Hillary people said, well, actually, by showing all these polls, showing Hillary winning, you, you put her voters in a state of complacency. Uh, <laughs> and when I see those kinds of heads I win, tails you lose situations, I kind of say, OK, there's probably nothing there. You know, I, I think you can spin that that argument however you want it to be spun. Yeah. Well, I think it's also, too, with the continuous uh, news cycle that, you know, that the media needs to talk about something, too. And so, mm -hmm. you know, every single data point is heavily focused on as they come out. And again, I guess, depending on the um, the perspective of that media outlet too, how that story is spun to the, the public as well. Right. Yes. Yes. Um, 
the 24-hour news cycle definitely doesn't give kind of slow-moving, reasoned um, discussion of data uh, much of a much of a very fertile soil to take root in. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, the some of the changes here of the 24-hour news cycle. One of the things that we've also seen, or at least that, that I perceived over the last few elections is that you're starting to get more and more polarization between candidates and they seem to be either moving farther to the left or or right but either way they're moving away from the center versus you know in the past i would say that you know you you tended to have you know candidates on either side of the aisle but they'd be closer to the center so i just wanted to get your thoughts about you know what your perception is around voter sentiment sentiment evolving over you know, the time that you've been covering elections, because I know you've been at it for a while now. You know, people are talking about political tribalism now. Um, you know, how Republicans perhaps might be leaning more populist, um, Democrats uh, more, you know, um, s socialist maybe. But uh, just, you know, if you could just <laughs> yeah. speak to your, your, you know, your observations. So there's, I mean, large books have been written on the question of like why we're polarizing i don't think you can really point to one cause um we're, we're definitely polarizing you know it's like you said uh, the, the republicans are embracing viewpoints that were kind of you know pat buchanan viewpoints back in the 90s and, and you know he he two republican primary races badly um the democrats you know, a lot of, I mean, Bernie Sanders is getting, you know, 25 to 30% of the vote with another chunk going to Elizabeth Warren, who's very similar to him. Obviously, this is not Bill Clinton's Democratic Party anymore. Why? You know, there, there's, there's a couple things. Um, some of it is an elite story. You know, the elites are polarizing, and so that filters down through things like Fox News and MSNBC. Some of it is that we're, we're sorting you know, now if you are, you know, liberal and you're going to move to Virginia, you probably don't move to Danville, you know, or, or someplace like that. You move to Charlottesville or the D.C. suburbs. That makes those places bluer. If you're someone who's more conservative, you probably find a different place to, to move in the state. Uh, so that drives it. And then I think the Internet is, is a big driver as well. Um, the, the, the gatekeeping function that what is now kind of derisively referred to as the mainstream media uh, has eroded over time. Uh, and so viewpoints that could be kind of shuffled to the side and you had to you know, subscribe to kind of obscure magazines, uh, you know, things like the Utney Reader or whatever, you really wanted to get a left-wing viewpoint. Um, you know, it, it's, it's all over the place now because of the way the internet functions. Uh, and so I think the internet has been very polarizing as well. Well, there's also the ability to, you know, focus only on what you want to watch, right? Or you what you want to read. And you you mentioned these left lean, left extreme left, left leaning, extreme right, right leaning. Um, and people go to find their news source. They they go to these specific sites, uh, which have, you know, they don't have both sides of the equation, unlike a real clear politics, right? So um, I think what it is also is it's a self reinforcement as well that. You go and get the same messaging time and time again because things are spun in those directions for, you know, uh, I'd have to argue it's for political gain, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, when I teach media, uh, I, I teach a, a, a intro American politics at Ohio State. When we do the Unidon um, media, 
you know, it always blows my students' mind that just 30 years ago, there were three channels that everyone watched. Yeah. And if you didn't like what those three channels had to say, you went and read a book. Right. Um, And and then there was the introduction of Fox at one point in time, right? (laughs) Oh, we lived in Texas and one of our neighbors moved to Dallas uh, to work for Fox. And I can remember my mom to be an executive for them. I remember my mom saying, this is nuts. Why would we need another network channel? Um, (laughs) And the rest, as they say, is history. Um, But, you know, in this universe where, you know, you have. 2,000 channels now and a billion websites to go to, your ability to curate your your news diet, your information diet, is really um, higher than it's been in the past. Bringing it back, you know, to to the what we're going to be undergoing in the next, you know, called uh, four and a half weeks, uh, four four and a half months or so, uh, come November 3rd on election day. Yeah, given the the state of uh, the world that we live in here in the U.S., with many of us still in shelter in place policies, uh, who you know we're not quite sure what's going to happen between now and November. But let's just say you know the impact of COVID nineteen still has many of us you know sheltered in place. What impact will this? Do you think this will have on on the year's election? You know, from anywhere from campaigning. You know, try, you know we've read stories about. Uh, um, below average voter registration because you know perhaps you know people aren't uh, able to to get out you know common places through the DMV you know and as they're mm-hmm. as those are closed down you, know, you might have that negative impact there in terms of uh, voter registration but then also just the voting process in itself you know the talk around uh, mail in votes is starting to pick up pace but just overall. You know, I, that's one of the things that I tell people when they tell me confidently, you know, Trump's going to win, Trump's going to lose, uh, especially people who say Trump's going to lose. Um, we're about to have an election like we've never had in this country. Um, now, it might be that everything just works out exactly the same as it's worked in the past and people just mail in their ballots. But, you know, in the middle of a of a pandemic and the president's job approval starting to go down, you know, Republicans picked up their first House seat in California from a Democrat since 1998. And it was in a district that Hillary Clinton had won. The, the Republican won handily. Now, there's local factors at work, but, you know, if this had been in-person voting and if the Democrats had had their normal get-out-the-vote mechanism in place, I'm not sure that would have been um, a 10-point win for the Republicans, which kind of goes against the conventional wisdom of how mail-in voting works. Um, so I, I don't know um, how that's going to play out, who's going to benefit. You know, uh, It's just so foreign uh, to what we have. And the other, other thing you're going to have is if it's a close election, I mean, uh, I, I, if I had one prayer for this election, it is that Whatever state number 270 is, the state that puts the president over the top for 270 electoral votes, that they win it by more than a point. Um, Because if it's less than a point, I mean, especially in a mail-in election, it's going to be, regardless of who wins, if the Republicans win, we're going to have nuclear, by less than a point, uh, we'll have nuclear war over vote suppression. And if the Democrats win by less than a point, we'll have nuclear war over vote fraud and I don't want to. I don't want to have to cover either of those. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, the hanging chads, right? <laughs> <laughs> Out there, and everybody scrutinizing was that intentional or not? And um, 
You know, I, I mean, uh, I think I think what we do want is something de- decisive, right? Uh, I think we'd all vote for that. Uh, um, yeah. is the outcome, right? So that way, at least there's some clarity and, and give the people what they want. Um, can you tell us what we are currently seeing in the market to, or uh, not in the market, in your polls um, for how things are evolving with the presidential election, whether that's electoral college base or popular vote? There's been that huge debate after the last one, uh, the Democrats, because Hillary won the popular vote, let's say that it should be a popular vote. And then um, you know, we obviously have the Electoral College, and that's the process. So what what is that data telling you today? So as of today, uh, Biden's up pretty handily uh, in the popular vote. Uh, I think I think our poll average right now has him up by five or six points. Um, I should have probably already had that pulled up, but yeah, I'm looking at it right now, Sean. I see it at eight and a half on your RCP oh, average. Is it up to eight and a half? Okay, yeah, I saw we got it's a pretty one sided too from Quinnipiac. Yeah, we got two polls in last night. One had Biden up 10, one had him up by nine. Um, you know, so so the problem is that the swing states um, are much closer. You know, we, we got the CNBC change research polls that show him, you know, up three in Pennsylvania, up two in Michigan, up now up seven in Florida, but up two in North Carolina, up one in Arizona, four uh, in Wisconsin. And when you look at the... Um, averages for those states um you know it's kind of the same story so i I think right now biden is up uh he he would win if the election were held today um but the race for the electoral college is is still three or four points closer um than the popular vote so if this race swings a few points back towards for trump to win he doesn't need the race to swing eight and a half points towards him he probably needs the race to swing four or five points towards him. Right. And where you're where you're reporting from in Ohio. Right. Um, that's obviously a critical place. Texas is always critical. Uh, Florida, just given the amount of votes they have. Right. So and Pennsylvania, obviously, as well, is another one there, too. So what 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 is that? What is it that you really I guess that as you think about the elections and how to do this. Like, what do you think is really the value add of knowing the polls um, outside of trying to predict the election? What do you think that people really should take away from this, uh, these ideas? The poll, the benefit of the polls, um, so there's two things. First, it's, it's, it's just a snapshot in time. So it tells you where things stand today, not necessarily where things are going to stand five months from today. Um, but, but what they really do, if you're willing to look at all of them at once, uh, is they act as a check on your biases. Um, you know, those polls showing remain ahead a point or two in the averages for Brexit really should have told people, hey, when I factor in the uncert- all the uncertainties that come with polling, I have no idea how this is going to turn out, and there's a very real chance that, that Leave will win. Um, I think right now you look at the polls and you say, yeah, if, you know, Biden's ahead. Trump's in some trouble. He needs things. Trump is the one who needs things to change in order to win this race. But when you look at the swing states, you say, but it's not so out of control for Trump right now uh, th- that he can't possibly win. Right. So I guess it's a way of just getting a pulse of, of, of where we're moving as a society and, and how people are thinking, too. So, you know, I, I always find I always find these interesting, these applications, statistics. I was obviously a statistical nerd myself. I'm not, not implying you are, but I was a statistical nerd. And I always like the, uh, you know, the applications of this, too. And I like that we're using, you know, more quantitative approaches, trying to understand the biases, the systems, the sampling error and the like. 
though we've all known them for so long, uh, being students of this, uh, it is it is great to see uh, that it's being applied to another field. And again, this is human behavior. And so also taking into account those behavioral biases and things, I think that there's a lot to learn from the polling aspects of uh, how we respond to financial markets as well, uh, again, on controlling some of those behavioral aspects. So uh, I found this very interesting, Sean. Uh, it's, a, it's a great conversation. Um, before we jump to Sam's favorite part of the show, can you tell our listeners where they can follow you or get information about you and your work? Yeah, you can uh, follow me, uh, my work at Real Clear Politics. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my, my Twitter handle is just Sean Trendy. Uh, it's real easy to figure out. Okay, so that's at S-E-A-N-T-R-E-N-D-E. So uh, for those that um, uh, didn't w- want to try to spell it phonetically, so it's S-E-A-N-T-R-E-N-D-E. Yeah, so, okay. Um, Sam, before we let Sean go, why don't you introduce him to your favorite part of the show? All right, and that favorite part of the show is called Sherman Says. Uh, Sean, what I'll do is I'll offer a series of alternating unique prompts, starting with Jeff Sherman first and then moving on to yourself, uh, to which you'll provide a top of mind response. And I'm going to start off the prompt for Mr. Sherman with polarization. Uh, Reality. The next one will be for you, Mr. Trendy, with election security. Real concern, but overblown. Sherman with political compromise. Needed. (laughs) Back to you, Sean, with authenticity of American politicians. Wolf in sheep's clothing. (laughs) Reputation of American politicians. Declining. Electoral college. Advantage Trump. Popular vote. Irrelevant. Electoral college. Exit polls. Ignore the early ones. Foreign election interference. Scary. And the final one here for the segment goes to you, Sean, with John Bolton. <laughs> Can we just have laughter be the response? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And let people infer it how they want, unless you want to add a word to it. <laughs> laughter is great. Yeah. I think TBD. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. So, uh, again, thanks, everyone, for listening today. It's great to have you on, Sean. I think it was interesting insight. Like I said, appreciate the work you do out there. I like how you approach things with your website or your, your firm's website, uh, approaching things kind of on a balanced view out there, trying to show both sides of it uh, and just give people facts and let them make up their own minds. So we really appreciate the work you're doing for the American people, but more importantly, to just uh, also uh, elucidating folks on, on some of the processes underneath that. So thanks again for the time uh, on the show today. Thank you. Okay. And so those of you that are listening to this, remember you can catch the podcast at Double Line's website at DoubleLine.com. Uh, We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, all kinds of uh, new apps out there that I've never even heard of. Um, If you have any feedback for us, remember you can follow us at uh, at Sherman Show Pod on the Twitter. 
Uh, it's at Sherman Show Pod, all one word. You can also send us an email and give us uh, all the hate mail that you've been sending us le- recently. At Sherm- it's, uh, the email address is shermanshow at doubleline.com. Uh, we also could use some love in there, too, if someone wants to send us some of that. So uh, Sam likes to read them all, um, and it influences his, uh, his opinion of, of society as well. So, again, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, tune in next week. We'll have another external guest. I, I promise that one will be riveting as well. So, again, Sean, thanks again for your time today. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you. audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020 DoubleLine Capital.